0: the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game and you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport you're going to hear from players caddies members of the media you're going to get the storytelling the golf news the player swing tips and a whole lot of laughs it's coming your way with this edition of beyond the clubhouse here's Garrett Well, big thanks as always to Jim Nance there for the introduction. And this week, Sergio Garcia, love him or hate him, the guy gets a big win in Mississippi at Sanderson Farms Championship. I think for him, I think it's a good thing for the game of golf when Sergio is playing well. He's so emotional, and yes, that can get negative, and you can see the spitting in the cup, but he gets pretty pumped up, and I think that you see. A very animated player out there. Not Yes, there's a lot of personalities right now in the BGA Tour, but there's not as many people who are as animated as Sergio is, especially when he wins. You see him kiss the camera, blow blow kisses to the camera there. Um, I I was impressed with his win. And, of course, Mark Carnaval from BGA Tour Radio is my guest this week, and he was walking every single shot, every single hole, calling the shots on BGA Tour Radio. And of course, he's been in the business for 20-plus years covering golf, so we're going to get into Mark's career. Listen, we hear him on the radio all the time. We hear him on PGA Tour Live. It's interesting to get to know what makes him tick, like why he loves the game so much. Of course, he played for, for many years on the PGA Tour and on the, what is now the Corn Ferry Tour. and. I just think it's always helpful to get to know these voices that we hear and understand what they appreciate so much about the game. And we see that, obviously, he calls the Masters a lot of these years on Westwood One. So we get into what it's like walking the grounds at Augusta, what it feels like to be at the Masters. And of course, he lives close to TPC Sawgrass. We all love that course, the Island Green. We get into that as well. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. And again, Mark Carnival from PGA Tour Radio. I am pleased to be joined by my next guest, Mark Carnivale. You've heard him all over PGA Tour radio for many years. He's been in golf broadcasting for 20 years, goes back to his time with Golf Channel, ESPN. You also hear him on PGA Tour Live. Mark Carnivale, Mark, how's it going today?
1: Well great, Garrett. Glad to join you, and uh, yeah, it's it's all a good thing that golf is We were able to get back with golf and uh, through all this pandemic and the. Uh, the uh, COVID-19 and everything, and golf. was very fortunate to get back with it, so I'm happy to be back broadcasting and uh, happy to be with you.
0: Great stuff. Well, one of the things about my podcast is, as you know, beyond the clubhouse, it's so much about the friendships that all of us make, lasting relationships with people in different countries. I know you go to Ireland, you go to many different countries throughout the year. But what is that like for you? I know you were a pro for a few years on, on a couple different tours. You won on the PGA Tour. You were Rookie of the Year in 92. But what, what has it been like befriending so many people uh, from this game?
1: Well, it's truly really what it's all about, Garrett. I mean, I, when I decided I was going to play golf for a living, it was never really for the money. I mean, that's you know easy to say. Obviously, I didn't turn the money down when I won money. But that wasn't why I had a passion for golf and uh, really, you know, a passion for life. And one of the things that I I learned early on, I was kind of an old soul in the sense of uh, I was the youngest of my parents, uh, five children. I kind of was always around older people uh, growing up. And what I learned from them that, uh, you know, life is like there are many paths, many, many roads traveled in life. And, And the one thing that's important are the friendships. Uh, some last, some don't, but uh, creating those friendships, sort of nurturing those friendships, uh, being able to you know, meet someone 20 years ago and then run into them again, uh, even though you may not constantly contact them. But it really is what makes life enjoyable, uh, really. I mean, and, and they enhance what you do for a living. Uh, they enhance uh, not only the playing part of it, but the broadcasting part of it uh and, and friendships are very important important for me uh because uh you know I, i've been very it, it was interesting when i was a younger younger man my mom said you know you're really fortunate if you can have five really good friends you can count them on one hand you're pretty lucky i, I sometimes need my feet to count my really good friends i mean people that you really uh, can call and, and if you need help with something or or whatever and it's been fortunate i mean that's one thing i I sort of prided myself in in how you treat people that you meet. Uh, I, I think that uh, obviously we all have different uh, sort of you know we we've all been raised differently. We've all had different experiences throughout our lives. But I've always believed that you know you owe you at least you owe someone the opportunity uh, to sort of create a friendship. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But uh, it's really what makes the world go round. I mean, it, it really does. Certainly in my world, uh, that's that's a huge part of it.
0: Yes. Well, you've got 16 years experience calling golf on the radio, PGA Tour radio, 20 years when you look at your time at ESPN and Golf Channel. Are, are there some colleagues that come to mind, or you you thinking former players um, of yours that really come up when it comes to friendships in golf?
1: Wow. Um, you know, there's just kind of been – there have been some that have – that have overlapped uh obviously i've worked a lot with billy kratzer and i knew billy when i played um you know jim gallagher who actually was out there working for golf channel last week in mississippi while i was working for radio i knew jim both playing and and broadcasting uh you know there have been a few that have in broadcasting uh obviously you know my good friend and 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 most all of them i'm most all the people that i work with uh you know, I, I try to create a friendship. I mean, a lot of them, because I've been doing this so long, a lot look to me for answers. Well, I don't, I don't have any answers. I mean, I just know that uh, you know, you you put in the work, you put in the effort. Uh, uh, you know, you 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 understand what your role is. Uh, uh, but you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's. I, I don't have any specific that I that I you know. May, I you know. Obviously, I didn't know Fred Albers before I started doing this. Obviously. You know, as you mentioned, the you know some of the producers that I've met along the way, not only with my radio show, but certainly through the radio on PJ Tour Live. Uh, it, it's wow. I mean, it might take me a long time to go through all that, Garrett. I mean, it, as I said, I've been pretty fortunate, and uh, as as my early on, you know, to be able to play golf for a living, to be able to play a game for a living, uh, I I was really fortunate. Again, it was not about the money. It was just—it was about the competition, the excitement. How I believed I was an entertainer, and you know, if I—if I could get one person to walk away from a round of golf that I played and say, "Hey, he gets it. I mean, he understands that it's not just about him, but it's—it's it's, there's a bigger picture to it." But not only have I been able to play golf for a living, I now get to talk about the game that I love for a living. So I—I I I know I don't know many people who are as that as fortunate as that to be able to do that. Uh, so I, as I said, I feel pretty fortunate, uh, through my, you know, now 60 years on this earth, uh, to be able to have been, uh, involved in, with two things that I love, you know, very dearly.
0: Well, growing up in Williamsburg, Virginia, I know you're an East Coaster. You went to, to Madison, uh, James Madison. We're going to get into that in a minute, but I wanted to go to, to Williamsburg for a minute. I know there was a PGA Tour event there. I think it was the Michelob, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, for many yeah. years. So did that overlap with your passion and desire to get into golf as your career?
1: Well, it was interesting. Uh, when I graduated from college in 1982, I, I didn't go to college to play professional golf. Uh, I was going to go into the finance business and the, the, uh, um, you know, the financial business. Uh, I actually had a job with Merrill Lynch uh, in Washington, D.C. that I literally worked for one day uh, and left. But that's a, that's a whole other story there. But uh, no, so I qualified right after I graduated as an amateur. I qualified, which back then it was the Anheuser-Busch Golf Classic, eventually became the Love Championship. Uh, Orion Burkhart was the tournament director I had known real well. And I actually qualified for that event three or four times. I'd gotten some exemptions. Uh, absolutely. That, that sort of helped me believe in myself that this is something I could do. And when I was hired by Merrill Lynch, uh, it was kind of an interesting, it was an apprenticeship type uh, job where I would be learning all the different parts of the brokerage business, but they weren't paying very much. And, you know, it kind of, that's when I kind of felt like, you know, I, I need to pursue what I love in life and, and golf was it. And uh, so I turned kind of, I, I worked one day and I just said, no, this is not for me. As I said, it's a much longer story. It's actually a really good story. Uh, it it kind of goes full circle. Uh, like you were talking about earlier, I mean, a gentleman that I would, would never forget was a guy named uh, uh, Phil Blevins, uh, who was the, was the manager of that office that hired me. And fast forward 10 years to 1993, uh, when I was coming off my rookie year season. Uh, obviously, I was born in Annapolis, so obviously the D.C. area, very, very comfortable. Uh, ben Brundred, who was the tournament director there, was a good friend of mine. I had qualified for that event, knew his son, whatever. He goes, hey, Mark, you know, we got this thing on Tuesday, the Maryland shootout. Uh, you know, you're a rookie of the year. You're from Annapolis. would be great to have you play. Would you love to play? Yeah, sure. Not even putting two and two together. So I show up on Tuesday with the first team. Who's there representing Merrill Lynch but Phil Blevins, who had hired me, at Merrill Lynch <laughs> – and I walked over, he had a big smile on his face, and he stuck out his hand and he said, you know, good to see you, Mark. He says, by the way, you made the right choice. Uh, so it, it, it's interesting. It goes back to the whole friendships. Like, I've never forgotten his name, Garrett. But, uh, no, it's, you know, it's interesting. But the, certainly Oren Burkhardt in the, the Bush Golf Classic was very instrumental in, in sort of giving me confidence to, to pursue a career in golf.
0: That's awesome, because that, it's always great when you hear from other people that kind of affirm the decision that you made, mm. especially at a critical point in your career. So that's, that's awesome to hear that. Um, I, I do, obviously, we're going to get to JMU. I'm going to a- ask you a Twitter question here. His name is Jim Castile, and he said, Mark, he wants to ask you about your JMU career. You know, what teammates or fraternity brothers come to mind, and, um, you know, what, what was that career like at JMU for you? Well,
1: it was interesting. You know, I, I had I had really wanted to go to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and for whatever reason, and that's that's a much longer story, as we'll get to earlier with my dad, uh, and we'll get to later, I should say, about my dad, but I always wanted to go to Chapel Hill. Now, I, I didn't play a lot of amateur golf growing up. My father, you know, made me work, so I didn't I, – he wasn't going to fund me to go play amateur tournaments, so I had to work, and then I had to pick and choose some – some events. I had a really good high school career, uh, but uh, JMU offered me a scholarship. Uh, my brother, my closest brother, had gone to school. Uh, back then it was Madison College and then became James Madison University. Uh, and I chose that, but I had every intention of going there and transferring. Of course, it never happened. Um, uh, there were guys like Jim Castile, who was uh, was a senior my rookie, rookie year there. Uh, there was Mike McCarthy, who was also a senior my rookie year. Um, Stu Strang, uh, was, was actually my big brother, in my fraternity. Uh, I am trying to remember if Jim was in my fraternity or not, but most of the golfers were in one fraternity and Theta Chi. Um, but so many, so many, um, so many people got, I can't even remember all of them, but, uh, you know, it was great. And, you know, I, I had some, I played quite a bit as a freshman, uh, you know, created, I won a tournament. I won a tournament my freshman year in, in uh, in Clarksville, Tennessee, the Austin, Austin the governor's classic uh, as a freshman. Uh, and, and really by the, by the sophomore year, I, I was pretty much the number one player player on the team. Uh, you know, had a great career there. I get great, great friends. I, I still spend a lot of time. I see Jim Castile uh, occasionally over the years. Uh, he lives in Tennessee and, and Kentucky or someone that I saw him when I was at the, uh, the PGA championship uh, there a few years in the Ryder cup, I believe. Uh uh, Mike McCarthy Bones. Uh, I, when I was doing a lot of work out of the studio in DC, uh, I would see them a lot, and I've stayed with them. Mike actually carried carried uh, caddied for me a few times. Uh, his son, uh, I should say, his brother Dennis, who also went to JMU, is the father of Denny McCarthy, who plays on tour now. So I, I, I obviously I, I, I look not look after, but I certainly. Uh, chat a lot with Denny, and, and that's all through my relationship I created with Bones and uh, – or Michael and his brother Dennis. And uh, it, it's – you know, we don't get together enough. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of players that played – it was interesting. I had one coach that brought me there, uh, Drew Bailog, uh three years ago. It was 2016 when the U.S. Open was at Oakmont. He lives in that area. I, I, I had dinner with him when I was up there. I've kept a little bit in touch with him uh I, I i kept in touch with a number of uh the guys i played with and it's uh i mean it was a great thing i mean it's i have nothing but great memories i stayed there uh all four of my years i graduated in four years which not many golfers do uh and i graduated with a degree in marketing and a minor in economics so uh it was uh but it was great it, it, it's great i'm i'm actually uh on the board the advisory board for the Hart school of sports management recreation and hospitality Uh, I was, I was named to that last year. So I have strong affiliations with JMU.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like a a lot of connection there from over the years. And also you did mention going back to your, your youth before we get into PGA tour talk and Sergio and and, and stuff you discovered at Sanderson, um, your dad, Ben, of course, you're one of five and, Mm -hmm. and I want to know a little bit more about your dad, Ben, of course, he was coach in, at Navy and UNC, I believe as well. Um, What can you tell our listeners more about Ben?
1: Well, my father uh, played for NYU in the 1930s. And NYU has a long history of great basketball. They won a national championship. uh, I want to say it was either 35 or 36. Uh, He was from New Jersey, uh, was the first player to be all city in New York that wasn't from New York uh, back in the 30s when he played at NYU. Uh, He had uh, gotten out of, you know, he had enlisted in the Navy. like a lot of people did back uh, in the late 1930s you know when world war ii broke out he actually was a a lieutenant in charge of a gunnery crew on a merchant marine ship and his ship was sunk off the coast of north africa and he and about 25 other uh sailors were, were basically in a lifeboat for seven days before they were finally rescued for by a dutch freighter and they were taken to, uh, I believe, Amsterdam, and then eventually made his way back. Uh, he had been down in Panama, uh, working for the admiral down there, and then uh, he was a teacher, so they brought him back. In, in early days, a lot of the universities taught, like the pilots and, and the, and the, and the uh, not the enlisted, but the, uh, I can't think of, you know, like the, the officers. A lot of the officers would go back to school, and my father was teaching at the University of North Carolina. And... Uh, they needed a basketball coach and, and the coach of the athletic to the president, and asked my dad if he would coach Chapel you know, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and he said, yeah, but I, I need a couple of weeks leave, and he actually went to the Pentagon uh, and, and got all the best players in the military, transferred to Chapel Hill, got Bones McKinney, got the name of Hooks Dillon, uh, and of course, in 1946, they lost uh, in the finals uh, to Oklahoma and A&M, and uh, he left North Carolina. You know, I, I don't know if he would if he'd have known exactly what was going to go on with North Carolina, if he would left or not, but, uh, he went to the Naval Academy. And he coached at the Naval Academy from 1946 to 1966. I was born uh, in Annapolis. Uh, he was very instrumental in getting Dean Smith to, to North Carolina, Frank McGuire, who was the head coach, uh, at Carolina, needed an assistant, my father's assistant, um, uh, Bob Spear had gone to the Air Force Academy, which they had just opened up. Uh, Dean was an assistant at the Air Force Academy, so you know how the coaches call one another. Uh, Bob says, "Yeah, I got this guy. I'd like to come to the East Coast with Dean Smith." So Frank McGuire basically hired Dean Smith on my father's recommendation, and of course, the rest is history there. Um, but yeah, it was great growing up around basketball. I, you know, he he stopped coaching when I was six years old, and when we left there, and we went back. He went back to NYU as athletic director, but because he stopped coaching is probably the reason I played golf instead of basketball. Although I love basketball, but I had three older brothers who all played college basketball. I love basketball. I was a pretty good basketball player, but when he stopped coaching, it allowed more time for him. And he he was a really good golfer. He was probably two or three handicapped. So he kind of introduced the game to me and it, it created a friendship that I had with him that I didn't, that my brothers didn't have with him because they were playing basketball, and he was always so critical. And not that he wasn't critical in golf, but uh, it just created a, a great friendship that he and I had, and, uh, you know, so it was, it was very fortunate to be around that. I was around uh, a lot of the best players, best coaches, best athletes because of my father's success. Uh, he was inducted into the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame in 1969. Uh, you know, I actually wear his ring, uh, his Hall of Fame ring. Um so I just I've been, I was very fortunate to be around uh you know two two very loving parents of my father and my mother and and was introduced to so many things because of my father's success. But he he's without question probably the most humble man uh, I've ever met. He he along with obviously my father's my biggest hero. My other my other hero is Arnold Palmer and, and, and you know he always reminded me Arnold always reminded me of my dad, just the way he approached everything. And uh, so I've been, I was very fortunate, uh, extremely fortunate, Garrett.
0: Yes, indeed. Sounds, sounds like some, some good mentors there you had uh, between your dad, Ben, and of course, Arnold Palmer. Thanks to Ward Clayton for that question. And now I want to get into Sanderson farms, of course, just wrapped up a couple days ago and you were out there every step of the way with Sergio on that Sunday, the shot he hit, that set up eagle was unbelievable. That's shot making Sergio mm. for you. Under pressure, though, I mean, this guy delivered under pressure, gets his first win on the PGA Tour since, of course, the Masters. He had won Europe a couple times. What did you take away from that day for Sergio? Because he's such a character for the game, you know?
1: You know, it's interesting. I've always thought that Sergio kind of has been mislabeled uh, his whole career. Uh, obviously, there have been some instances where you know, with the regripping of the fans in New York, a, a number of different things that have happened uh, where he may or may not have been right or wrong with how he addressed it or how other people addressed it. I don't know. But I will tell you this. I've, I've known him for, you know, some 20 years uh, since he first got on the PGA Tour. I, I've known him real well, but I've interviewed him a lot and, and, and certainly saw it. I can tell you that there may not be a, a nicer guy, one of the nicer guys out there. Uh, you know, we all have, as players, there's all instances where maybe you ask the question at the wrong time, you know, uh, and, and it just, it comes across the wrong way, not necessarily just maybe it's been an interview, maybe the people watching the interview or whatever, uh, but I've always felt like he was kind of mislabeled, but uh, I think he was, he's always been very accommodating, but I was extremely impressed, and one of the things I was most impressed about was just that he, he did everything the same every time. And obviously there was a lot spoken about how he was closing his eyes when he was putting. Uh, But if you watched him on every putt, it was the same amount of time prior to drawing the putter back. He did the exact same thing every time. And the important thing in golf is no matter what you do is that you're consistent And and it doesn't change. It's, it's all about setup and preparation. And I was just impressed with his demeanor. And on the golf course, he never looked like he was uh, flustered at all or like he was allowing any situation to upset him. Uh, he kind of dealt with everything uh, on a very even keel. Uh, I even mentioned after, after it was all over with his caddy, Michael Kerr was uh, was over on the side. And I said, Michael, great job. I said, impressive. I mean, he just seemed to be in focus the whole time. and And, and Michael just kind of took his hand and just went, yeah, he was like this. Uh, which I is extremely important for golfers you know Garrett, but just to be able to pull those shots off says a lot uh, about sergio and and when he when he made contact with the shot at eighteen and i'm i 'm up there behind the green, you could just see him start walking you know I mean the ball was not even at the green, and he was walking because he knew he 'd hit a good shot uh, as he said to me after he says well, i, I didn 't know if it was twelve feet or what and I said I knew it was a good shot, but he didn 't know how close it was and but that's him, and, and he, he was just very consistent throughout the whole week, uh, putted extremely well. Uh, you know, you were kind of always on your, on your edge waiting, okay, we know Sergio's going to struggle with some of these putts. We know he's going to miss them. He just never did. I mean, he missed one short putt at number six that I saw on Sunday, and that was it. Everything else was, was just good speed, good everything, good reads, and, uh, you know, congratulations. And it was a, obviously a great year for him because he and Angela had their second child, Enzo. In March, but on the other hand, uh, his father had lost two brothers due to COVID uh, over over the summer, and so it was you know there's a lot of meaning behind the win, and you could see uh, he was very emotional about it, and and that's Sergio, and that's you can never you can never take emotion out of anything if you're if that's be your character and that's who that's who you're, you know your your M O is uh, you you need to be who you are um and, and Sergio has always been that way and obviously that was a very emotional win for him yes
0: well he always likes to say Tru, true to myself I, I, I need to be true to myself and that's that's exactly yeah. to, to your point about the, the way he views things right
1: absolutely I mean that's uh I mean I always I always felt uh, for whatever reason the word's not coming to me but like your golf swing needs to mimic your personality there you go I mean I, you, everything you have to do things who you are, the way you are. I mean, if you're a hyper person, you're probably going to have a much quicker golf swing. You know, doesn't mean it's wrong or anything, but, but everything's going to be a lot quicker. If you're kind of laid back, it's going to be a little more languid, maybe a little more, you know, a little slower. Just, I mean, and again, it's not a reflection on who you are, what it is, it is it is a reflection of, of your personality. And I think a lot of times players will, will try to change it. And, and even Sergio said, you know, I've, I've tried a lot of different things, but I just need to be who I am. And, you know, he's kind of bought into this whole process. You know, does it lead to more wins? You know, probably. Uh, you know, does he continue with that? Uh, I mean, he even indicated that. So I have no reason to change it. And it's just something actually he, he tried doing before. And, and until you have success with something you try as a player, you, you don't know whether it's going to work or not. And, and the fact that, you know, he had success with it, certainly this past week, is very important for
0: him. Yes, hugely important for him. And also, I'm glad you kind of talked about personality and our swings. I do want to get to a little bit of instruction with you in just a little bit. We'll do that for our listeners. But before we get there, um, with Sergio, obviously a huge win for him. This kind of segues into the Masters now. As we know, of course, he'll be back. He's won it three years ago. And Tiger's still defending champ. As you look ahead to the Masters, you've called on the radio a number of times. Um, how much are you looking forward to it? And, and what is it like for, for our listeners who don't get to Augusta, yeah. haven't been there yet? What, what is that week like? Well, this
1: week is – this year it's going to be very unique because there won't be any spectators. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Augusta National, you know, how they set stuff up for us to broadcast. Normally – uh, I would be in two locations throughout a round of golf. I would be at the very top row behind eight green and I would stay there till everybody came through. And then I would move to the 17th and I would be on the top row of that. Uh, I, I don't, you know, why would they build grandstands if they're not going to have any fans? So I don't know if they're going to build little broadcast positions or, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe we're going to be able to walk the place. Who knows? I doubt that, but uh, it, it'll be interesting. Um, and it be interesting even for that. It'll be interesting because of of the whole Bryson DeChambeau factor after the U.S. Open. Uh, is he going to be able to dominate Augusta National? Like, obviously, he performed well at, at wing foot. Um, that's yet to be seen. Uh, is this win going to help Sergio? Because, uh, you know, it's about ball striking. But we've always known Augusta – and the Masters really comes down to putting, uh, you know, putting the putting in short game. Uh, is, he, is his short game going to be good enough? Is Tiger, who's played very sparingly uh, this entire year, uh, you know, as far as I know, he's only going to play one more event before the Masters at the Zozo in California. And I think that might be eight or nine total events from his win a year ago. Uh, and obviously we don't know with Tiger – You know, we we all want to be critical of it. So when he needs to play more, he needs to play more. But we don't know how he feels. You know, I mean, the fact that he's playing golf again after uh, the surgeries that he went to. And, yeah, he's won. He's won three times. Uh, You know, he he won the tour championship. He won the Masters. And he won Zozo. Those are probably wins no one ever thought he would ever get. Uh, Maybe he never thought he would get. Uh, So he has to prepare differently. So is Tiger a favorite? You would have to think so. Is he the favorite? Probably not. You I know, mean, what's going to happen with Dustin Johnson? I mean, as the way he dominated, uh, you know, the the, the playoffs and, and and won the FedEx Cup, uh, you know, they've always talked about, I mean, Augusta would be perfect for Dustin Johnson. He's never played real well there. I mean, he's, he's he had some decent finishes, but he's really never contended uh, to win there. Uh, it's it's going to be exciting. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, what's Augusta going to be like without fans? Because that's... I mean, that's what it is from the practice round, practice days, uh, to Thursday, you know, and just the excitement, there's not going to be the buzz there that you normally feel. And, and actually all golf tournaments now, that's something that, that is not there is, is, is there's, there's not the, the buzz and everything about the golf on the golf course.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's a different feel, and it seems like certain players feed, are feeding off it, or maybe miss it more than others. You know, there's talk of Rory, you know, not having those those cheers behind him, um, and, and then whereas other players, Michael Thompson, you know, are, are not, aren't going to have the huge galleries that Rory yeah. has, and maybe he's able to free up and, and still play j- just fine. Um, the perspective, though. When you walk on the grounds at Augusta, I know for me, the first time I was there 2011, the 10th tee, when you're walking straight down that hill and you got mm-hmm. those towering pines, just, it's gorgeous. It's like it, on no other part of the course are the pines that majestic. They just mm-hmm. feel like they are swallow you up. Um, I, I just love that walk there. But what stands out to you? I know there's some listeners here that haven't been to Augusta, but what really stands out about the walk?
1: Well, I, I mean, when I played in 1993, obviously after I'd won – in Chattanooga, you know, I was there and, and, you know, I, I always wished I had gotten back at least one more time because uh, it was a number of things, but the reality was when I walked from the locker room to the first tee, uh, I really felt like I was walking on clouds. I mean, it was a very, it's a very special place. Uh, there, there's so much history, you know, it's like walking uh, at, at St. Andrews. I mean, there's just, there's something about it. I mean, all the greatest players that have ever played the game, you know, made that same walk from the locker room to the first tee at, at Augusta National. Uh, it, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a very uh, surreal sort of feeling. Um, and I had kind of rewarded everybody that never supported me and some of my sponsors, and I had, I had, you know, I had rented a house, and I kind of was too involved with that to really, uh, you know, I shouldn't say not focus on playing, but I kind of was a little distracted. But at the same time, I felt like I owed them that uh, for supporting me. I remember I played with uh, Billy Casper in the second round and I was asking Billy and I'm like, well, you know, cause I remember the first round I got out there and, and the green speeds were not even, they weren't even close to what they were on Wednesday. Uh, and I three putted for the first five holes and uh, you know, kind of never bounced back from that. And I asked Billy, I said, well, how long does it take to you know, to get says, oh, you got you to play four or five times here before you really get up, you know, feel all the nuances of Augusta National. And, and unfortunately I never got back to play again. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's, you know, the respect that you have a, as a player has from fans and people that follow the game that you've played the master. I mean, that's, that's really the first question everyone ever asks you as a professional. Hey, you ever played in the Masters? you know? Uh, and I was fortunate enough to have done that. Um, uh, uh, but only once. So yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, I'm sure all different uh, professions, you know, have a iconic venue or iconic sort of moment and something about them that, you know, gives you a, a a really, you know, good feeling about everything. And certainly Augusta did that.
0: Well, another course that, that we all, all golf fans know is of course, uh, TPC Sawgrass where they have the players championship, the Island green. It's been redone a a bit over the years. I know I think it was a three and a half years ago. They did some redos to it. I I think with the year that Jason day was defending champ, um, for you, you live out there, Mark, what is it like? Explain for our listeners what it's like to play that course at TPC Sawgrass.
1: Yeah. For me, it's a love hate relationship.
0: Um,
1: I've never, I've never been a huge fan of, of Pete Dye. Uh, I like some of his courses, but I've never been a huge overall fan of his design because I've always, and a lot of it comes from my, having lived here now 25 years, uh, that it doesn't always reward a good shot, that sometimes bad shots get rewarded. And I don't think that's, I don't mind that happens occasionally, but it seems to happen here with a lot of the mounding and a lot of other stuff. But it's a great golf course. It's really one of the best tests on the PGA Tour for a number of reasons because I truly believe it's one of the very few events that the player that has actually played the best that week wins because you have to drive the ball well. Your iron game has to uh, you know, be really good. Your, your short game has to be really good. Your bunker play has to be good. Your putting has to be good. And maybe more importantly, your, your, your course management has to be really good. Uh, because this golf course can just, uh, jump up and bite you. And and obviously you factor in conditions and I like the fact that they've gone back to March. That's when I played it. Uh, I I just find it a little bit tougher with certainly uncertainty of the winds and everything. Uh, it was a little too hot personally in May. Um, it's not what I I would want it to play. Uh, I, I still think they're still fine tuning, uh, the course set up in March. Uh, but, yeah, it's a love-hate relationship. I enjoy playing it, but I'm frustrated every time I play it.
0: Yeah. I, hey, I mean, he, he gets in the players' heads. That's what Pete Dye does. So, um, and, I,
1: and, and I just want, I want to clarify, I, I don't dislike Pete Dye's design. I'm just not a huge fan. Uh, and, and so it's no reflection on him as a designer because obviously he's done some great stuff. And I'm just not it, – it, it never fit in my golf game – the way some other designers, you know, courses have fit mine.
0: Gotcha. Well, you did talk a little bit earlier about swinging like your personality, as we talked about Sergio. But for us as weekend hackers, recreational golfers, one segment I always do on this show is what can we do to warm up better? Because as a professional golfer for many years, you've probably seen different type of warm ups and you've experienced ones that work and ones that don't. But when it comes to getting to the range, we got fifteen minutes. We're coming from the office. Uh, okay. what, what do we really want to prioritize in those fifteen minutes, Mark?
1: Well, first you got you have to do some stretching. Uh, you just can't stand up there and expect to hit the ball. Whether it's you know whether it's a hamstring stretch, a calf stretch, or something, you know, ro- getting some rotation in your upper body, I think is very important. Uh, the other thing is we've always had this you know, belief, and I think every golfer is probably guilty of it, except the only one that I know that's ever done this, is we all start with a sandwich. And and a lot of people think, okay, you kind of get into your golf swing. Well, I remember I was playing in a tournament, and and, and, uh, Tom Watson, you know, walks on the tee, and he pulls out his three iron. And I'm like, Tom, you know, why why would you start with your three iron? He said, well, the three iron – is going to allow me to stretch a lot more muscles in my body than the sandwich. So he starts that way and works back down. Whatever you do, just have some consistency to it. You know, don't, uh, I would also tell people don't have expectations based on your warmup. Uh, I think we all think if we're not hitting it well, you go to the first tee with a bat. You know, if you're, if you're, wherever many balls you get 20, 25 or whatever, before you go out and play, if you're not hitting them how you want. So I think a lot of times people just go to the first day thinking, well, it's going to be a bad day. Well, you don't know. I mean, warming up is warming up. It's not executing. It's not, you know, and a lot of times people sit there and they'll aim at a flag and they'll hit 20 shots of that flag. Well, the flag's not moving. The the ground you're standing on is flat. So if you're going to, if you're going to practice shots, you know, practice, you know, kind of punch shots, practice working the ball right to left, left to right, to different distances instead of hitting to the same shot. I mean, everybody goes to the range and they pull out driver and boom, 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 boom. What good does that do? You're never going to play a fairway that's that's wide. That's as wide as the driving range. You know, you have to narrow your target. So I, I, would, I would say, <coughs> excuse me, other than stretching and, you know, pick some narrower targets that you're trying to hit at. But, again, don't necessarily base how you're going to feel about your round on the, on the 20 to 30 balls you hit before you go play.
0: Well, speaking of narrowing our targets, when it comes to chipping, and of course we're going to miss a ton of greens when we get out there because we don't play as much as we should, but what can we do to find consequence or or, or some kind of definition with, with our chipping?
1: Well, again, it's consistency. It's set up. Uh, it's motion. You know, it's, you know, is it a, your rhythm in, in the in the pitch? You know, I think a lot of times amateurs – they they get in such a hurry to help the golf ball, you know, let the club head do the work, you know, again, make sure you know, when you practice and that's the other thing, you got to practice the short game. You you, you can't expect to go out on a golf course after just hitting, you know, a bunch of full shots, uh, whether it's, you know, whatever, you know, whether you take a a day during your week, if you can go out and practice, just spend one day practicing the short game so that you establish a setup, establish a rhythm for it. And like anything, it's about consistency. You know, uh, it just you know try different shots. Um, everybody everybody wants to go to the lob wedge because they see every tour player you know bring out the lob wedge. I mean, you've got 14 clubs in your bag. You know, experiment with some other clubs. Try to hit different shots. Um, and and but you got to practice. I mean, that's the biggest thing is you got to put some time in with it. And I know a lot of people don't have that time. But but maybe instead of playing golf one day on the weekend, you you spend the day just on your short game or something, but you got to develop consistency. And and again, you can't be in a rush. So the rhythm has to be there. The timing has to be there, but the only way to establish that is by actually doing it.
0: Yes. And so if we're able to do it, maybe add it to our schedule a little bit, we get into putting and let's in our pre round routine, we're on the putting green. What do we really want to dial in in those five, 10, 15 minutes that we're on that green?
1: Well, you, I I might think obviously you want to spend some time with the putts from five feet because there's a pretty good chance you're going to have quite a few of them, uh, whether you're a good putter or not, whether you miss a lot of greens, you know. But you want to create some rhythm, you know. Don't focus too much on one type of putt. You know, get some putts to go left to right, and some putts to go right to left, and then to to kind of work on your lag putting, take some putts that are maybe you know twenty five to thirty feet. And just get some rhythm with that. Don't feel like you got to make all these putts. You want to, it's all about speed and judging, you know, how you read the greens. And, you know, it just, you just need to, again, you need to spend some time getting a feel for it. You know, you sit there and, you know, you walk out to a course and there'll be a guy sitting there and he's putting the same putt over and over and over and over and over again. Well, the chances of having that same putt in a round of golf, pretty slim, actually, you know, because you're not going to have the same you know, if the green's flat or whatever, uh, you know, so you, you just, you need to uh, work on some variety. And, and, you know, and the biggest thing is also don't grip the putter so tight, you know, make sure you have a lighter grip on the putter. I, I, most amateurs I see their grips. It's just, you know, their, their white knuckles are showing when they grip the putter because they're so anxious, you know, just, you've got to let the putter flow, you know, and whether you putt cross-handed, left hand, whatever, it doesn't matter. Putting is very, very unique and you know i don't there's i don't think there's any one set way to putt i mean the one thing about putting like it is about the golf swing is being able to have the putter square at impact just like the clubs you know it doesn't matter how you get it there if it is square at impact you're going to be able to control that ball if your putter's not square at impact you're never going to have an idea where it's going
0: a uh, fair point yeah a lot of us don't know where it's going so <laughs> it, it does help to get that that feedback from you mark well, well Mark, has been great visiting with you. I love the advice there for us amateurs on, on chipping and warming up and, of course, the insight on Sergio. Going back to your JMU days, of course, your dad. We've covered a lot of territory. Always enjoy the time with you, Mark, and uh, thanks again for joining me here on Beyond the Clubhouse.
1: My pleasure, Garrett. Take care. Hope all is well.
0: Well, good stuff there with Mark Carnevale from PGA Tour Radio, PGA Tour Live. You can listen to him. Basically, every week it seems like he's calling shots. But good to hear some insight there on Sergio and insight on, obviously, his own career, his time at JMU, James Madison University. Of course, he grew up in Virginia, former pro. Good to get some tips from him as well for our game. So anyway, Mark Carnevale joining us. And, of course, you can follow this podcast on Twitter. We're at Beyond Clubhouse. we got a special guest coming up here later this week. Get ready for Sergio Garcia. He's going to join the pod with his wife, Angela. Uh, we may even have the whole family. They've got two kids, uh, so who knows? But we're going to have a lot, a lot of fun with them. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Get some more updates at Garrett, And then, of course, on Instagram at Garrett Golf. Facebook, Beyond the Clubhouse. And Garrett Johnson as well on Facebook. But really looking forward to uh, catching up here on this next episode. Hope you enjoyed this time with Mark Carnevale. And uh, look forward to... Seeing you again very soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.